two to the power of more. A podcast from Brockmeyer and Salo. Innovation thinking. During the pandemic, we found out the hard way that schools are not optimally set up for distant learning and that the digital infrastructure and the learning models are lacking massively. The mindset of politicians and those in charge in schools don't seem to understand the essence of digital learning. For today's episode, we have the honor to welcome Dwayne Matthews from Canada. He is specialized in education and the founder of the Tomorrow Now Learning Lab. Hello, Dwayne. Welcome to the session, The Future of Education. Christian, thank you very much for having me. Additionally, we have Dieter Brockmeyer in the virtual studio. Dieter is the innovation expert from the Diplomatic World Institute and the co-host of this podcast. Hi, Dieter. Well, uh, we make it a habit. Dwayne, please be so kind to introduce yourself. Sure. My, my name is Dwayne Matthews. I am the founder of the Tomorrow Now Learning Lab. Um, once upon a time, I, I taught at schools. I taught um, what we would consider grades, grades three, four, five, six, and a little bit of library. Um, here in Toronto, we have a concept called the model school. And the model school is best known as an inner city school in other places in the world. I've taught at a model school for a number of years. And I also taught at Franklin D. Roosevelt in Lima, Peru, which is an international private school uh, between the years of 2003, 2005. After that, um, I left, I, I got into technology transfer and technology scouting, where we looked for any kind of paradigm shifting innovation on behalf of Fortune 500 companies. Um, and eventually, I found myself back into education, looking at the conversion point between education and fourth industrial revolution technologies and realizing that many, many education systems around the world were not prepared for this shift and what would be needed to create the shift and how should education shift to prepare students for the future of work. Um, and so I spend most of my days doing that. I've done a little bit of um, work with AI and learning. I've done a little bit of work with neuroscience um, at the Neuroscience Lab, uh, the Fobera Institute uh, out of the University of Montreal, um, but all focused around education and the connection point between fourth industrial revolution technologies. Great. Dieter, do you want to go ahead? Yes. I don't think I need to talk too much about the Diplomatic World Institute anymore. I think most of our listeners will know that by now. By now. Education, of course, is only a little segment of what uh, we are looking at, we, uh, since we are looking at the entire innovation sphere and how that interlinks with society, with economics, with human well-being. And of course, education is one of the big elements uh, to make our future worthwhile and prosperous for, well, in best case, for everybody. So our school systems globally are pretty much prepared for the good old school situation where a number of schoolers sit in front of a teacher and the teacher is doing something in the classroom. Dwayne, what is so different in a new digital world? The first thing that people need to think about is as they look at digital technology or technology in general, a lot of people have lost sight of the fact that school has always been about technology. Once we, we went from just, you know, typical learning at home 
to learning at scale, it became about technology. Which technology? Well, 600-year-old technology. Most people forget that the printed book is actually a pretty advanced and sophisticated piece of technology. Um, it's, it's morphed into our life, and now we just consider it to be life. But we probably about 150 years ago formalized the study of this particular type of technology so much that, you know, we would take anywhere between 10 to 30 kids and put them into a class and get them to use this technology. And it allowed us to do many amazing things. Now we're seeing a number of technologies that are converging all around computer processing at an exponential speed. And we have a paradigm shifting moment again. So that technology is fueled by digital and computer processing power. So it, it then makes a lot of sense when we look at it through that lens that we need to readjust how we educate our students and how we educate children to prepare them for the future of work. So we, we need to make an adjustment and think about you know, what job are we trying to get done and what technological pieces do we need to get that job done? And, you know, that changes a lot of the premises, or as we, we say here in Canada, a lot of the sacred cows around what school is and how do you educate children at scale. Okay, but what is the perfect environment and digital education system in your opinion? Well, I, I think the, the, the perfect education system focuses on what are the, the skills, um, what is the mindset or mental frameworks. And how do you personalize that at scale? So what we found is we were preparing students for a factory-like economy. So typically, you know, the world of work looked like there were a few people at the office, there were more people in the factory, um, everyone got paid and everyone went on to have a good life. Um, now we're seeing that, you know, the world of work is changing to, to a more knowledge worker base. And so we think about that knowledge worker and we think about all the different things that shift, things like what time do you start working? What time do you finish working? How intense do you work? Um, what kinds of things do you do? So we start realizing that we need more ideas. Um, we need more learning strategies, which is the ability of students to learn on their own and to be independent. We need more resilience and perseverance, and we need more creativity because information is starting to become a commodity. The, the, the amount of information that we have is growing exponentially. And so what we require is a significant amount of discernment and how do we synthesize that information to get to the outcomes that we want. So that's, that's a profound difference in terms of how we learn. So in terms of the perfect system, the perfect system then takes very specific mental frameworks that children should, should learn. And then how do you take those mental frameworks and allow students to personalize their learning? The other is to, to really look at the idea of time. Now, here in Canada, a school is basically organized into age groups, and the school year is approximately 192 to 194 days long. And that gives a sense of urgency as we go from kindergarten to what would be year 12 to post-second, some form of post-secondary education. What we're realizing now is that if students need to be lifelong learners, this changes a lot of the intensity around those times. 
And now you can extend and do deeper dives into topic areas, really focusing or using the content to focus on the thinking, learning, and creativity components. Dieter, do you agree? Yes, in general, I think that that is really a, a good point that Wayne was uh, was rising. But of course, the problem is, as you uh, were already describing in your opening remarks, the people are not ready there yet. So the politicians are not ready to move into that direction. The schools are not ready to move in this direction. The students probably are the ones that uh, would adapt to that much faster. But since uh, parents, authorities, and uh, teachers are just not adapting to the idea and don't understand the concept behind it, and uh, they think it is important to keep school as it is today, and remote learning is something bad, and it has. To, and if you do it, it has to be uh, done in classes like uh, we uh, we know them before. Because people need the direct inter interaction with uh, with their in their age group and with the teachers. Well, that's all true, but not exclusively. There are also completely different ways on how you can learn your, uh, the things you need to know. But as long as a city like Frankfurt, one of the economic centers of Germany, is not willing to increase their digital agenda for schools and complete it before 2024, you realize that they don't understand the concept. And if you then uh, find out that they, the digitalization for them is to install 9,200 desktop computers in all the schools, then uh, you, you realize it even more. So we are facing quite a bigger problem of changing the mindset of those people that are doing the change and that so we can start really getting the best out of digital education. So, so in, in, I mean, it's really interesting to, to hear your points of view. And, and we have a lot of the same challenges here in Canada. Um, I've spoken internationally and a lot of places have very similar challenges. And that's because we're, we're typically talking about two things that are very, very sacred to society, A, school, and B, children. And so, you know, everybody wants the best for their children. And so everybody, nobody wants to, to be experimenting. So I think what happens, though, is, is, well, two things. A, to realize that this is a good thing. It's good that we have a stable system and stability is typically a, a good thing. And the reason why it's good is because any kind of disruption you know, it's sort of mapped out on disruptive theory. If I don't know if you're familiar with Clayton Christensen at Harvard, who wrote extensively about disruptive theory, you know, he maps out very specific ways to, to sort of move from, you know, having a very stable incumbent to one that is disrupted, um, what, what he typically ascribes to the edges. So I think, and, and what do I mean by the edges? We're going to start to see innovation at the edges of, of the main system first. And, and we're starting to see that. There are, there are hundreds of educational experiments around the world where, where people are doing things you know, similar to mine, where, where it's, it's, it's very sort of innovative, cutting edge. Um, how could we push the bounds of education? But I, I think the, the big signal is going to come from industry itself. What drives a lot of families is they want the best for their children. So they put their children to school, Hopefully, they encourage their children to be the best and for them to be able to grow up and to get employment and to have a good, prosperous life. That, in a sense, filters off into the national economy 
and it's good for the country. The industries themselves will start to send signals out into the market that they are not getting the types of students that they want. And we're already starting to see that. Last year, somewhere around August, Google came out with a certificate program that is six months. It costs $300. And at the end of it, the participants end with a $92,000 job, which is quite profound because it's international. So that means that you can compete from Toronto to Frankfurt to you know cities in South Africa to cities in Central America and the Caribbean. So now it's a, it's a much wider net. And you know if you start asking parents, you know, would you send your child to do a Google certificate for six months or four years in, in university? You'll find that there's going to be an interest in that six-month program. We're starting to find uh, companies like Disney have put out institutes. Uh, I know that there are a number of the large companies here, the banks, are starting to put out learning institutes for things around cybersecurity and the like. So you're going to start finding public-private partnerships that are really going to drive that change because of the demand. The demand is going to pull the supply. And so right now we have the supply um, sort of reflecting. So pre-COVID 2019, a lot of people were reflecting, is screen time good? Is it not good? How much screen time? Um, you know, digital transformation, do we want it or not? Post-COVID, we're going to find a rapid movement towards digital transformation. And even large companies are going to say, hey, you know what? We're going to need to get better university students. We're going to need to get better college students. We're going to need to get better high school students um, to fit this particular type of job to be done. The other thing that, that will happen is we will find that the emerging economies will not have these long debates. I saw a picture of a number of schools in Rwanda where all of the students had digital technology in front of them, all. Right, which is which is something that we don't have here in Toronto. You mentioned that you don't have in Frankfurt, and this is Rwanda. This is a country that was, you know, going through a civil war in 1997, and so here they are in 2020, and they have complete schools that are, you know, have complete computers. They have uh, a big focus on robotics. So we're going to realize that the the world has gotten a lot bigger than just the Western world, and that's really going to drive our need to accelerate uh, how we educate our children. Well, it, I'm really stunned, or not stunned, it, it really supports what uh, my uh, impression of Africa, what you said about Rwanda. And I really think that Africa has a brilliant future because they really are adapting so quickly to digital technology and they have such a young society and these people are now in schools and are educated to the point so I think this will be the next surprise for, uh, for us, uh, for those people that cannot imagine that it will happen, that suddenly Africa will be on the agenda, very big, and will show us the shortcomings we, uh, we had uh, in the recent years. Right now, it took us maybe about 20, maybe about 20, almost 30 years for us to get this many people on the internet. So we have approximately 3 billion, 3.2 billion people that are on the internet. We're, we're generating about 2 billion devices that can be connected to the internet a year. So we, we, we typically have a surplus or will have a surplus. And after the end of this year, we have Elon Musk. And I believe uh, there's, a, there's another person that's working on, on constellation satellites that'll provide um, 
you know, fast broadband internet to another 5 billion people. So in one year, we're going to add 5 billion people. Um, these are people that were not connected before. These are people that are very, very hungry to, to move their prosperity up. They do not sit from the privileged position that we're sitting where we're having these discussions. It's, a, it's quite a necessity. And so I think that's going to drive the world forward in the next five years in ways that we can't imagine. And it was a good thing that we had COVID. I mean, not uh, for our societies, not for the economy and not for our physical uh, well-being, but it was good for many reasons. And one of the reasons is that it really made shockingly clear all the shortcomings we have. And this now gives uh, provides a chance that we are, uh, that we can change things and so I'm, I'm too quite optimistic that uh, we will see a digital push in the next, maybe not five years, maybe it's 10 years, but the push will be tremendous. A couple of weeks ago, we had a politician in this uh, podcast show, and uh, we were talking about uh, digital infrastructure. Wayne, what would be the message we should give that politician when we talk to him the next time when it comes to, to learning? So I, I think, you know, you mentioned that there was a, a move to say, you know, by 2025, in the next four years that, you know, all the students would have uh, devices and, and the like. I, I think we, we have to explore models in terms of how things are distributed. So I mentioned that we typically globally generate two billion connected devices. So that's laptops, tablets, smartphones. And that's every year. So, you know, if, if we do that every year and there are only three billion people connected currently, that means that every two years there's a billion surplus of devices on the planet. And so we really have to figure out what is the best way for us to, to deal with, with the, the excess. How do we deal if, if everybody is upgrading every two years somewhere on the planet, then we need to do a better job at moving those devices around. And I think a great way to do that is through private-public partnerships. If, if a lot of large companies are getting rid of their laptops, where do they go? Um, where do they go? Like, you know, here in... in in Toronto, the, the government is like, you know, we need to, we can't afford to buy new devices. And, but right down the street, we have large businesses that literally are paying people to take their devices and to throw them into dumps in different parts of the world. And the devices work. So wh why, why are we doing that? Um, you know, we, we really need to look at the premises that we have around standardization and personalization. And I think, you know, we need to borrow from some models. So if we look at models like Uber and Airbnb, we look at models that really balance personalization and centralization much better than the standardized models that we've had in the past. And so we, we need to start exploring models like that. My, my advice to politicians would be to set up what I call blue teams and red teams so the, the red team could be, you know, hey, we're going to follow our plans um, that we have. But the blue team says, let's go and find innovative models that we may be able to adapt and experiment with. And if we find some of those models that we can scale, let's bring that back and let's have a discussion about the model itself versus the concepts. So that way you, you have models, you have parents that have... Uh, The, the, the option to choose 
and to say, you know, maybe this standardized school is not for, for me or, or for my children. And maybe I do want to look at these models. Maybe I do want to look at the models of tech adoption. Maybe I do want to look at the models of, of project-based learning um, and, and digital. And from there, we can see, is there a demand for that type as opposed to saying everybody does this or everybody does that? That would be my message to politicians. The biggest thing is, how do you set up those red teams and, and, and blue teams to create a bridge from the present to the future? Well, yes, uh, the problem I, th I still see is a transition in the mindset of people. Uh, we can, uh, we can uh, present these uh, concepts to, uh, to those in charge. As long as they don't understand it, it, it will not be uh, uh, fruitful. And uh, that's the, the, the big problem we are, uh, that, was, that became really obvious in, uh, yet, uh, in this pandemic situation. And we need to find models to really get, uh, get these, the people in charge involved and to work on, their, uh, on the change of their mindset, to make them more open-minded to the innovation necessary. Uh, because if they don't, uh, don't understand it, uh, we always will be stopped and slowed down. And yeah, and that's not good for, for anybody. So, so, so here's a thought to that. A, a thought to that is to have a different view of education. So currently, we view education as a way to educate children. Um, but I, I think, you know, one of the interesting conversations that I, I had with a, a, a head of state is to view education from a national security point of view and to realize that the Western world, um, our scientific prowess has, has given us our position in the world and the national security issues at which COVID-19 has, has shown us um, are, are quite profound. And so we have to look at it, the digital transformation, not just from a point of view of the prosperity of children, but the actual productivity and national security of a country. And so once we start doing that, we only have to look at countries that have low productivity and low uh, or high national security concerns. And we start realizing how severe um, the challenge is and how quickly the change is coming. So I, I think reframing the conversation for, for politicians may allow them to get a sense of some of the urgency. And then the last piece is to, to have trust in, in the market to drive that change. And, and so I know that, uh, you know, not always the most popular, but I think a lot of the change will be driven by the market. And we only need approximately around 15%, 14.5% to have a profound shift. And my last thought to it is, is um, you know, I remember, I remember specifically um, here in, in, in Canada, our big company in Toronto was BlackBerry. And I remember specifically um, that presentation of the iPhone and executives at BlackBerry saying, you know, those iPhones are just going to be for people's daughters. They're not to be taken seriously. Um, and, you know, I, I go, uh, <laughs> I, I drive by the empty BlackBerry car lots where they're putting up condos now um, because, you know, most of, most of all their facilities have been sold off and, and nobody remembers them. So I, I think it's really, really important to keep those types of stories in mind as well. Um, I'm sure we probably all have pretty large companies that we can think of that did not heed the warning of change. Um, but that's upon us now at, at the country level. 
This was Dwayne Matthews from Tomorrow Now Learning Lab and Dieter Brockmeyer, the innovation expert from the Diplomatic World Institute. Thank you for the interesting session. Kristin and Dieter, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you, Dwayne. Alti.com The online portal for institutional investors in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. Alti.com